Since Chagas launched The Dairy Edge in January 2018, Ireland's first dairy-focused podcast has gone from strength to strength and in July 2022 reached the incredible milestone of half a million listens. Presented by me, Emma-Louise Coffey, alongside the additional bonus episode content from Stuart Childs of the Let's Talk Dairy webinar series, the Dairy Edge has given farmers and the industry weekly insights and analysis, as well as farmer stories and experiences to keep its listeners up to date with developments in dairy farming. To celebrate its 500,000 listens, we look back at some of the show's most popular interviews. First, let's rewind back to January 2018 and Grass 10 manager John Marr outlined the principles of grassland management as identified in the Grass 10 initiative. We know that the average level of grass um, grown on farm from the National Farm Survey in Chagas is about 10 tonnes. However, we know the best farms, um, including research farms, can grow above 16 tonnes. So the reality is then we're trying to get more farmers up to that level. So the, the background then to the, the Grass 10 campaign is we know if we if we grow 14 tonnes of grass and uh, we will eat about 10 tonnes of that. That's why it's called Grass 10. Equally, if we achieve 10 grazings um, per paddock in the year, we'll do the, the same figures. So for some, it's about measurement of grass and, you you know, talking about 14 tonnes of grass grown, 10 tonnes utilised, which is about 80% utilisation rate. For others who don't measure grass, then it, it, it's, it's easy to think about grazing rotations and, and achieving 10 grazing uh, rotations per paddock per year is a good way of achieving the same target. There's about four pieces to the jigsaw. Uh, there is soil fertility, there's receding, there's grazing management, and there's grazing infrastructure. So we'll start with the basics, which is the growth of grass plants starts below the surface of the soil, and that's why we focus on soil fertility. So these things we're talking about here then are the, the lime requirement of the soil, uh, the pea status of the soil, and the K status of the soil. Dairy advisor Gráinne Hurley explained the importance of achieving graze outs and its impact on sward and cow performance. Look, it's critical and it can be hard to achieve depending on your soil type and your farms, you know, for sure, like, no, but look, it, it's it, it's something that we must prioritise as well in our grazing targets. Um, so we know that the grass plant, um, it does a lot of t- tillering, does most of its tillering in the spring and early summer, like, so again, the, when a grass plant tillers, there's more leaves coming out of it, more, more daughter tillers, more daughter plants, that comes from the very base of the plant, way down there, the very base of the plant. So what's critical down there is that if for this grass to tiller out, to thicken out, to grow more grass, if you're getting, if you don't graze out your swards tight enough in the spring, the grass that you leave behind is very going to die off, and it's going to shade out and and and, and the the grass tillers underneath. So you actually, what will happen then is that if, if if you continuously do this, if you continuously don't graze out the sward, you're going to get this build up of the stead material which will have a knock-on effect in terms of the amount of grass you grow in subsequent rotations because you're not loading that extra tillering, okay? The other thing as well, like, you know, it's, 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 an, you know, it's something that I've heard um, advisors in the past talk about, um, old colleagues of mine, it's like, you know, if, if you go into a restaurant and, and someone hands you a, a lovely dinner this evening and you only eat half it, okay, and you send it back to the kitchen and you come to the restaurant again a day or two later and the plate that you just comes back out with the old dinner and then the new dinner on top, like, you know, the feeding value in that won't be great. And it's the same with grass, I suppose, that if you leave in the spring, if you leave a lot of uh, grass behind you in the first rotation, that dead material will build up, you know, and that, that subsequent um, feeding value will deteriorate over time. So, look, by grazing out your swards um, to the, 
to four centimetres in the spring. Number one, you're going to grow more grass in subsequent rotations because you're allowing that tillering. But number two, you're, you're going to have a better feeding value in the subsequent rotations. And we know, you know that's going to have a positive effect in terms of um, milk production on, on the herd as well in subsequent rotations. And also, you know, don't, you know, around the corner, we'd be looking at the breeding season again. Like, so again, where, where we graze out our swards to our four centimetres in this rotation, when we're looking at our second rotation, which would be early, uh, which would be into April, where we'll be hitting our breeding, you've high quality grass in front of your breeding cows at that stage, like which is going to be a very positive effect as well. Researcher and head of Animal and Grassland Research and Innovation Programme at Chagas, Lauren Shalhoub rationalised the seasonal production profile of Irish milk production and why we don't operate a flat milk curve. There's a kind of a term called, um, when we look at processing capacity, it's called uh, process, uh, capacity utilization, which is essentially uh, a calculation that shows, you know, uh, how well we're using our processing capacity. And if we look at some of the European countries, they work at a figure of, you know, somewhere around 90%, even above 90%. So essentially what that means is that their processing capacity is close to fully utilized all year round, which is, uh, obviously has has implications in terms of the requirement for capital uh, when additional uh, expansion happens. It has um, implications for running costs. It has implications for depreciation. Whereas to compare Ireland in that same boat, we're at about 62% in terms of capacity utilization in the country. So we use our capacity, our processing capacity up to 62%. And that's because we have a seasonal curve peaking somewhere around 14% in May. And, you know, in the December, January months, there's, you know, one to two percent. So so very little milk produced over those months. And that has, I suppose, implications around the additional requirements for processing capacity and so on uh, as we expand. So I suppose that's the first thing. That's where we are in terms of uh, capacity utilization. One important note is that, you know, that has actually um, improved over the last um, four or five years. So with the relaxation of quotas, uh, what we're seeing here is that the shoulders are building up. Uh, we're looking at calving date. If we look again over the last five or six years, calving date has moved back from, uh, on average, mean calving date was somewhere around 6th, 7th of March, maybe 2013, 14. And that's now back to around about 28th of February. So there is, again, movement at farm level back in terms of, of, of uh, calving date. So I suppose what are the implications from a seasonality and from a, from a, a curve that looks like that? And I suppose what we did was we looked at a piece of work that we did a number of years ago um, and we kind of updated that based on where we are today. And essentially what we, we showed from that was that um, about 1.3 cent or 1.4 cent a litre, uh, if we flatten our curve, not flatten. So what we did was we compared a seasonal calving, so a spring calving system, to a system where we calve 50% in the autumn and 50% in the spring. When we do that, uh, our seasonal calving, as I've said just a minute ago, our seasonal calving curve peaks in May at about 14%, whereas our uh, split 50-50 calving system uh, peaks in April at approximately 12%. So, you know, that's, you'd have imagined with a lot more cows calving in the autumn that your peaks, you know, that you're, you'd have flattened the curve uh, even more, but you don't. Uh, in in essence, to get a European curve, we'd have to calf all year round, which again is something that we don't want to do. But just to look at it in terms of you know capacity utilization, when we look at capacity utilization, as I've said, about sixty two percent, 
Currently, if we move to 50-50 uh, spring autumn, that capacity utilization would go up to about 70%. The implications for that then are uh, milk price would go up by about 1.3, 1.4 centiliter. Cost will go up by about three centiliter. So what we're saying here is that there would be a reduction in profit to move to that split cavern system to the tune of 1.6 centiliter. And I think what's really, really important is, you know, yes, there will be a higher milk price. So, you know, um, we'd be able to pay a, mil a higher milk price. The industry would be able to pay a higher milk price. That's clear. But the problem is that profitability at farm level would be reduced. Uh, you know, scale it up to where we are today at roughly 8 billion litres. It's worth about 130 million euros a year to stay with where we are rather than trying to flatten the curve. Uh, so, so I suppose, you know, importantly, you know, the curve calving down, calving um, cows to, to uh, grass supply, matching feed demand and feed supply is still the key direction for the industry uh, going forward. The MoveIt, Eamon O'Connell, identified proactive measures to reduce incidence of milk fever at calving and consequently eliminates metabolic disease in later lactation. As I said, we've seen an almighty amount of it in the last two weeks in particular, more than any other spring, I would think. But I suppose what happens with milk fever is on the, on the journey towards the point of calving, the cow's body is getting prepared for what's coming. So what's coming is, I suppose, the big event of the calving, but straight away afterwards, particularly in these, in these high BBI, high volume dairy cows, is, is the production of milk. And the production of milk, the birth itself and the production of milk all requires calcium because calcium is responsible for, for muscle and muscle action, but it's also responsible for the production of milk and it, it gets leached into the udder as part of the production of milk. So we're trying to prime the cow's body to be ready for that day when everything changes, you know. So body condition, I suppose, is the first thing. It's important for, for all animals to calve down fit, not fat, I suppose, would be the very, very basic. Now, I won't get into the whole arguing over body condition score three versus 2.75, but the majority of farmers that will be listening to this will know um, fat cows versus overfat cows versus thin cows, you know. So your cow's in good enough body condition. And the second thing then is your pre-calving diet and its mineral content. Um, the majority of you guys would be familiar with using magnesium as a primer of the system. So magnesium, you feed enough of magnesium daily in the cow's pre-calving diet right up to calving in order to prime our system to be able to absorb calcium from the gut and to be able to leach calcium from our skeletal system because that's where our calcium is stored. It's stored in the bones. So as soon as she calves, there's a big draw on from the udder and from the active calving on the calcium store in the bones and on the absorption from the gut so you're just trying to prime that system and i suppose what we've seen quite a bit of from a veterinary point of view if, if we start seeing one or two milk fevers in the herd we'll get in and we'll take some bloods off of up close cows right up to the point of calving and a lot of those won't have adequate enough blood magnesium levels in them so you'd be looking at magnesium supplementation which can be difficult because a lot of the pre-calvers a lot of the the higher end pre-calvers even would have about 28 percent magnesium in them and that means they're getting 28 grams a day if, if, if it's fed correctly but I think some of the grass-sided samples this year aren't coming back massively high in magnesium, so even even extra supplementation is needed. But realistically, what we're seeing more and more in, I suppose it's more older cows in particular, um, more higher bred cows, higher bred for milk, they're really, really prone to get milk fever. And obviously, said that the, the heavier they are, again, the more prone to get milk fever they are. And look, a cow with milk fever, a lot of guys will will maybe go in with a bottle under the skin and see what happens. I think if you've got 
you've got a good cow and she's got proper milk fever and you know she's down and she's not making a great effort to get up, I think give your vet a shout and get get some get some calcium into in, intravenous as well as under the skin because um the longer she's down and particularly what we found of late, maybe she'll calve okay and she'll go to the parlour and then she might lie down at the back of the collecting yard and not able to get up. If they're having difficulty getting up, they can lose confidence. They can get a little bit sore. They could even injure themselves. So I think the earlier the intervention you go with, with, with milk fever, the better. Looking to profitability and areas to invest money and see the greatest return on dairy farms. Signpost advisor Seamus Kearney quantified substantial returns from improving soil fertility. The starting point, I would say, uh, Emma Louise, is to, to look at the lime. Look, that's the one to start working on straight away because I suppose the one thing with lime is um, lime is, is, is a huge return on investment. It gives a 400% return on investment. And uh, if we told people that we could get them this white powder that would give them a 4% return on investment, lime probably isn't the first one to think of. So a huge return on investment in lime. And really what the lime will do, it will help to release uh, nitrogen. So by getting the lime right, you can release up to uh, 60 units of nitrogen per year from the ground. And it also helps to improve phosphorus automatically by releasing available phosphorus out of the ground. So lime is definitely a starting point. So I have be saying to farmers and look at their soil samples, uh, get a map. If it's a case of getting your aerated maps and marking on the aerated maps, which fields are low on lime. So at least that you target lime uh, on those fields, first of all, to start releasing uh, phosphorus and nitrogen uh, to help reduce the fertilizer bills. If you look at the prices where they are at the minute, uh, Emma Louise, like a, a load of lime is a uh, 20 tonne, a load of lime is about 500 euro. We're looking at uh, over uh, about 950 for a tonne of protected urea. The load of lime will probably give the same kind of response as a three qu- uh, of about 70% of, uh, of uh, um, a tonne of, of protected urea, but it'll keep giving that return uh, year on year once the lime is right on the farm. So it's the continuous uh, release of the nitrogen and getting the phosphorus right at farm level. Dairy farmer Mike Birmingham explained the move to reduce cow numbers, having identified a proportion of cows in the herd that were being fully fed from purchased feed. We went up to 115 in in 2017. And we managed to be a fine. Uh, we had the calves on the platform as well. We were stocked to 2.6 that year. But we were buying in a lot of silage. Look, we had to buy in 300 bales of silage that year, plus the ton of supplement. So we were we thought we were purchasing too much supplement in, really. You know, it was a big it was a big cost to the business. There was 30-odd thousand a year being spent on silage and, and nuts. So we thought that was a bit... It was a bit risky, you know, or we had a lot of money, you know, and it it showed last year that with the drought, like, because everything went squeaked by 300 bales of silage again last year, like last year's feed went up to 50,000. So we're just a bit worried about that, that we're, push, you know, that are we buying the milk really more than the marginal milk is there. If the farm can grow 14 tonnes of grass here and we utilise... 85% of it, which would be very, very good going if we could. That would be 11.9 tonnes. So that means there's 5.2 tonnes of grass available per cow, roughly. And put a tonne of meal with that. That gives you what the cow needs for the year, really. Head of Dairy Knowledge Transfer, Joe Patton, outlined how to create a fodder reserve to reduce the risk to dairy farm businesses. I would contend that Optimum stocking rate and then having a feed reserve are two separate but related questions, right? That the 
optimum stocking rate, if, you, if you're, uh, look, ideally, if you're optimally stocked, you end up with, you basically use your last bale on the day you need your last bale, if you know what I'm saying, and that's it. It's perfectly balanced. You use what you need, and there's not a huge surplus or a huge deficit around that. That you, you, you just have about enough. That's what the optimum would be. Now, if we run at optimal stocking rate, we do need then to have a reserve over and above that in case that our that our grass growth drops away from what we had what we have set the farm to to to, to suit. Okay, so you know we should be looking at optimal stocking rate based on the long term growth rate on the farm with the long term growth potential on the farm, and then we need to be looking at a feed reserve as a once-off measure almost to to, to complement that in case things go a little bit a little bit awry in terms of growth rate. So, you know, stock. You know, if we, if we took the approach of saying I'm going to understock the farm in order to have enough feed reserve, we will end up you missing an opportunity to to have to have more maybe milk output or more productivity. We just end up in a situation where we've you know we end up accumulating too much silage basically. Uh, we, we just need to have. We need to be a bit careful to define the two things as slightly as slightly separate. So we would be saying stock the farm optimally, make sure that it can grow enough to meet the farm's demand on a on a sort of five year average. But on top of that then we should be looking at as a once off option, looking at maybe bringing a bit of reserve in just to keep us in check in case things go a bit a bit wrong. Siobhan Kavanagh and Tom O'Dwyer from the Signpost programme provide context to the environmental policy that will inform how we farm. And they challenge us to whether we have adopted all of the proven technologies that will reduce our impact on the environment. We're tied into a number of international, EU and national agreements and policies. And I suppose if you go back to 2015, the UN set out a set, a series of sustainability development goals under 17 of those goals and it's a universal call to action, basically to end poverty, protect the environment, and improve the lives and prospects for everyone. And one of those 17 goals, goal 13, actually, is around reducing gaseous emissions. And I suppose those goals, or that one in particular, has set off a set of agreements and policy declarations across the globe, both at a national, international level and a national level. So just maybe to take you through a couple of those the main ones are obviously we've signed up to the Paris Agreement, which is actually a legally binding agreement. And that requires that all 197 nations um, involved limit temperature increases to less than two degrees Celsius or ideally less than one and a half. And when a lot of people hear this to say, yeah, should we'd love to have an increase of two degrees in our temperature? Should we'd have much nicer summers? But I suppose to make two points on that, um, that's two degrees on average, and that can be far higher in the summer months and lower in the winter months, obviously. But then one, one or two degrees might have a massive impact us, on us in Ireland, but elsewhere in the world, two degrees could be, could be very, one or two degrees could be very, very critical. So that's the Paris Agreement that we're signed into. At an EU level, then the Green Deal, or more specifically, the Farm to Fork strategy, which is at the centre of that, has set out a number of targets for farming to achieve over the next couple of years. So you have your greenhouse gas reductions, you have um, reductions in nitrogen use, antibiotic use, pesticide use, and a number of other things. So that's at an EU level. And then at a national level, we have the, up until now, I suppose, we've had the Climate Action Plan, which sets out a target of reducing agricultural greenhouse gases by 10 to 15%. But just to stress, that is now all news. That plan is gone. Um, The Climate Action Bill was passed through the House of the Oireachtas only very recently, and that sets out a target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the whole of 
for the, for the country by 51% by 2030 and committing to net zero or carbon neutrality by 2050. Research is, is ongoing and research will always uh, identify new uh, solutions which can be applied by farmers. Um, you know, if, if we look back over time, you know, we, we can see um, items that have emerged through research and are now commonplace on farms. So that's, that's going to continue. Um, however, be, before identifying some of those new and emerging technologies, um, Emma-Louise, I'd, I'd just like to say that it is important that dairy farmers um, embrace and adopt the technologies that you, you, you have said that they are so well-versed in. So, for example, protected urea. You know, while while farmers might be familiar with the technology, um, there's a long way to go uh, until we have the level of usage of protected urea that we need to achieve. Likewise, with white clover, again, you are you are correct. You know, I've met farmers uh, and they're embracing white clover. You know, and they're 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 um, using slightly different altered techniques at reseeding time to ensure that you know, white clover is established and then the post post management, they're doing things slightly differently to give the clover the best chance possible. So yes, farmers are beginning to embrace it, but we're a long way from being at the, the level of um, adoption of, of those known technologies to, to say that, you know, the, the game is won there. We will leave the last word to renowned agri-consultant Matt Ryan, who has worked in the dairy industry for over five decades. Firstly, Matt highlighted the strides that we have made in research studies on labour that can promote work-life balance. I love competition. I love putting in the effort. I, was, I would be regarded as a poor hurler. I, I had a very poor leaving cert. I made, you know, I didn't let that hold me back. And uh, yeah, so uh, I think uh, people can, um, with determination, can get there, you know. So uh, yeah, and I made a lot of friends. Very, very, very few enemies on the hurling field, in case you think. Um, maybe a few went to me there, but anyway, I haven't time to tell you the story about them, but uh, yeah. So, but it, they, it was a major part of my life. Uh, I actually think I would have been a great hurdler, except that when I was growing up, we hand milked, of course, and I was useless at it. But um, uh, we, we had this carry on of 12 hour milking, six o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the evening. Training would be half seven or eight. So, your chances to get to get more training in time were nil on a bicycle. So if I only knew uh, then what I know now, that uh, 12, uh, a 16 8 hour milking interval gives you the same amount of milk as, uh, as a 12-12, I would have been a lot better hurler. And finally, Matt reflected on dairy farmers' ability to cope with various challenges that exist today. I think we're in a better position to deal with it. Like if you think I, a lot of people, that maybe, some people that are listening maybe will know like all, all our products in the in the sixties and seventies were go, or, were exported to England, and you know they weren't called John Bull for nothing, you know. And uh, they decided what money they'd give us. We were at the whim, whims of the UK for a market, and we were we were in a very very bad place. You know yourself. God, if you can't, if you weren't able to sell your cattle, and cattle, we were all mixed farms then, so the cattle was a major part of the the, um, the income. So, yeah, so we were really, we were really struggling then uh, in our markets. We have, we have, we're markets all over the world now, uh, and I, we have a great product. 
I, I think we 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 I, I relatively speaking, I think we are we have, can be as positive, a lot more positive than we, you know, we overcame some fierce challenges in the past, and now uh, I think we can. I, I'm not saying easy overcome it, but I'm very, very, very confident that we can overcome. I, I said to myself uh, two years ago, because obviously I'm in trial out of my years, I would love to be an agricultural back again, uh, starting now, because, you know, we have so much going for us. We have really so much going for us, you know. Okay, there is a type of quota there now, but we can, we have, um, we can improve cow uh, performance further. You know, all the things that DBI has delivered for us, we can improve that a lot further. Consequently, I think the stocking rate will get over that. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I really emphasize the reality bias that we have in dairy farming so that we, you know, maybe a little bit need to be a little bit more careful and concentrate on the things that we can now control. That's it for this special episode of the Dairy Edge podcast. And we hope you have enjoyed our highlights reel of some of the top episodes in the last five years. The success of this podcast is down to our guests who give of their time and share their knowledge, as well as you, our listeners. The growth in the Dairy Edge reflects Irish dairy farmers' willingness to learn and improve in all aspects of their dairy farm business. Special mention to our producer, Dara Whelan from Last Cast Media, for his production work in the background. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey and join me next time for your Dairy Edge.